The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we assess Putin's claim that Bakhmut has fallen to Russia, analyse important announcements from the G7 summit in Hiroshima, and report breaking news that armoured vehicles had travelled across the Russian border, capturing a number of villages around Belgorod. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 22nd of May, one year and 87 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor of Defence, Dom Nichols, our Russia correspondent, Vitalia Vasilyeva, and foreign reporter, Genevieve Hole-Allen. I started by asking Dom about the fast-moving developments in Belgorod. Well, hi, Francis. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so let's go to the Belgorod region. So this is the area of Russia that borders... Ukraine and Belarus. So we are, we're looking at the Kozinka border crossing checkpoint. This is about 50 k's northwest of Kharkiv and 300 kilometers exactly due east of Kiev. So there are reports there, numerous telegram channels, numerous social media channels, some of whom I don't know, but others that I do and I find them verifiable, trustworthy sources. But like I say, there's a lot of information out there from places I've not heard of before, so I can't verify that. But there's looking. it looks like there's been some incident at the border checkpoint there and in the town just a little bit further, another couple of k's inside Russia. So the Russian local governor said that there was a Ukrainian sabotage group has crossed the border. There are other posts on social media saying that a Russian battalion called the Freedom of Russia, which it says fights uh, on the Ukrainian side, and another group, possibly the same group or maybe a separate group, like I say, reports are somewhat confusing. Another group suggesting it's called the Free Russia Legion have conducted some actions there. There are images of flags, a white, blue, white, sort of three stripes, sort of top to bottom, white, blue, white, which they say is the the flag of free Russia, has been posted on a number of bridges and kind of municipal buildings in the area. Now, the video I've seen, which purportedly comes from this border crossing point, shows a number of, they on the face of it, they look like armoured vehicles, but I think if you look closer, they are not, I mean, they look like big 4x4 vehicles that are been added to with a bit of armour and some other bits and bobs, but I don't think they are sort of bespoke armoured vehicles. The Russian telegram telegram channel Baza, which is linked to Russia's security services, published footage saying there was a Ukrainian tank attacking a Russian border post. Now, I've not seen any tanks, and if those if these are the vehicles I've seen that, that are being referred to as a tank, it's a gross mischaracterization. They're, sim- they're simply not. But we don't know. We don't know what's happening. However, there have been reports of shooting and shelling in the area, and there's imagery again geolocated to the area showing Russian Mi-8 helicopters, the big sort of troop-carrying helicopters, 
although they can be armoured as well, armed, flying very low in the area and, and letting off its flares, which is a countermeasure to, to try and decoy any heat-seeking missiles, anti-air missiles coming your way. So, of course, this region of Belgorod, it has been fairly spiky over the last few months. We do see these occasional sort of blasts going off at 50, 60 k's inside Russia. Last week, you'll remember there was there were four Russian aircraft, two fighters and two helicopters shot down, we think, by their own sewer. There were some claims that it was a Ukrainian ambush, but we don't really know. I think it probably was Russian air defences being a bit twitchy or uncoordinated. So, you know, this region has seen some activity either from regular Ukrainian forces or special forces saboteurs we don't know it's the first time I've heard of this group called the Freedom of Russia and the Free Russia Legion so we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on it I mean this is a a small action in a small part of the border and the town that they say they've advanced to which is only two kilometers away so you know it might be we don't know what's happening exactly but it might not come too much at all but yeah so we will just uh, make a note of that and uh, and bring you up to date as we see anything Thanks, Dom. And I would point people to the live blog, which Genevieve is currently updating, because we've got obviously all of the breaking news on this story on there throughout the day. But Dom, just staying with you, a very significant morning and 24 hours regarding Bakhmut. Or is it? What are your thoughts on the latest here? Yes. Is it significant? I think it is significant simply because if we... and OK, let's start by saying, let's say that Bakhmut has fallen. This is the first time that Putin... excuse me, still recovering from the weekend. This is the first time that Putin has come out to say that it's a victory for Russian forces in Bakhmut. And, you know, he's a fairly canny player. He doesn't put his neck out if he's not if he's not reasonably certain. I hesitate because it's the third time to my memory that Prigozhin has claimed victory in the city. But hey, let's, for the sake of argument, say yes, they seem to have taken the whole of the city. Let's also suggest that this is of their making i it's there is russian military activity this is not a and it might be but i'm let's just assume it's not a, a, a ukrainian tactic to finally cede the city because they seem to be continuing these advances to the north and the south so almost like some trying to draw as i suggested in last week's defense in depth video is wagner being lured into a trap from which they can be they can be destroyed so you know all that is for speculation and for future analysis but at the moment it looks as if Russia has indeed finally taken the city of Bakhmut. Whether or not it is significant, I think, depends on how you look at these things. So you shouldn't just, if you're in charge of a big army, you shouldn't just go and do military stuff because it's all good fun and what have you. There needs to be a purpose to it. And there is a purpose in just taking land, taking geography. If you are taking a major airport, a major seaport, a major logistics hub, you know, that is worth, that piece of ground is worth fighting for in its own right. Now, I wouldn't put Bakhmut into that into that category. You also fight to try and keep momentum going. If you have some other prize that you're aiming for some weeks or months down down the line. So now if you can generate momentum, then again, that is a that's a good reason for taking a piece of ground that on the face of it doesn't really offer a huge amount. But again, I think what's happening, if that's what they're trying to do, I think Russia are mistaking action for momentum so just doing stuff just having just taking action like last night the other action was that they fired 16 missiles and 20 shade drones at the city of Dnipro four cruise missiles shot down all 20 drones shot down but you know these are uncoordinated actions they don't really knit together they don't build towards anything it's not part of some bigger scheme so 
that, yeah, okay, this is a victory over the shattered hellhole of Bakhmut. But I just wonder what it means. Now, a lot of Russian telegram channels are saying, well, this is it, right? We now march on to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. I mean, those are 20 kilometers away to the northwest. And it's taken Russia, what, you know, best part of a year to get a few hundred meters through this medium-sized town, a small city. So the thought that they could just motor off up the road to Kramatorsk, I think it is fanciful. I think what we've seen here is very little adaptation by Russia. They're still sticking to their tactic of firing huge amounts of artillery and then sending people in afterwards. And it's largely people now. They are running out of armoured vehicles, albeit you know they, it is the Wagner group that did most of the fighting in the city centre and they're not massively equipped with armour. But you know, it's largely pushing people in afterwards to find the gaps in the line, to exploit small successes. So I don't think Russia have shown any great way or they've not shown the ability to be self-critical and examine where they went right and what they did wrong and improve for the next fight so the idea that they can then just motor on i think is unreasonable now Yevgeny prigozhin head of the wagner group he said he's going to pull his lot out by june the first hand over to regular russian forces again i doubt that he said that kind of thing before and i think ukraine would be quite happy with that I don't think the Ukrainian forces in the area, certainly that, as we saw the 72nd Motor Rifle Brigade in the south, got pretty badly mauled last week. So I don't think the regular Russian forces there are are much cop. There's VDV, the airborne forces, Russian airborne forces, have been pushed into some area to try and sort of hold back these advances in the north and south of the town. But generally, it's fairly uncoordinated. You've got different forces, Wagner, regular Russian forces, local militia for the, you know, whatever it is, Donetsk People's Republic. So they're not working well together. They're not coordinating. So I think this idea that they can then just keep going is, like I say, rather fanciful. And there's a, I mean, there's a load of quotes. You'll find, it on, you'll find it online, various people saying what it means, what it doesn't mean, which is fine. You know, Russia's hailing it as a massive victory, the, big, the best, biggest victory, one of the greatest battle victories in the 21st century. I mean, you know, that's... It's just not. It's really not. So I, is it significant? I don't hugely think so. But I've been fairly consistent with that line. I was obviously visited by my my friendly troll farm over the weekend. With people saying, oh, I can't wait to see how you spin this on Monday. But, you know, I've not been spinning it for the last few months. I think there were two different battles going on here. I think Russia saw this as a battle mainly for symbolism. The Wagner Group trying to burnish their credentials um, and take a few lumps out of Shoyu. And I think Ukraine were willing to meet the fight in order to keep Russian forces fixed and to wear them down to improve the relative strengths. So I think there are two different things going on here. It's been hugely costly to both sides. I think all sensible estimates are that it's cost Russia vastly more in dead and wounded. But, you know, Ukraine haven't, this has not come at anything like a small cost for Ukraine. But I think they've been happy to have the fight there. If they're going to have the fight anywhere, they chose to have the fight there. So is it, is it significant? I don't think so. I think Ukraine got out of it what they would want. I think Russia has got out of it what they would want. So, you know, it's not an easy slam dunk. And most often, if you're talking about huge, significant victories, it should be fairly obvious that one side has benefited from it massively more so than the other. And I I really don't think that's that's the case here. I don't think it says much itself about the fighting power of of the russian armed forces and i really don't think it augurs well for for anything in the immediate future it really doesn't look like they can just pick it up you know off, off you go again so no m- marginal significance and doesn't really answer any of the questions that are still being 
posed to the Russian armed forces in this war. Well, thanks, Tom. And I echo your perspective on Bakhmut. The timing of this declaration of victory seems to me perhaps the most significant thing about it. As you say, Prigozhin has claimed to have taken the city three times before now. So why this moment that we see Putin sort of jump on and say that this is a huge thing? Well, it could be because it has really been taken. But then if one looks at the two hugely important summits over the weekend where Zelensky received significant assurances from his allies and countries more friendly to Putin, which is something I'll turn to in a moment, it feels more likely to me that Putin wants to change the narrative as sharply and swiftly as possible. And it also favours Prigozhin as well in this sort of moment of shifting changes on the military sphere with regarding to Wagner. It just, these sort of the stars have aligned for it to be a very convenient moment for Putin to claim victory in Bakhmut. So we will obviously have to see the truth of that over the coming days. But let me turn to the diplomatic developments over the weekend, perhaps the most significant actually in many months. So The first is a continuation of the F-16 story I reported on last week as being speculation that the White House was going to grant permission for European countries to donate their modern fighter jets to Ukraine if they so wished. Well, we now have official confirmation from that, from the horse's mouth, as it were, President Biden himself at the G7 summit in Hiroshima over the weekend. When President Biden was asked whether he agreed with Russia's statement that supplying F-16s is a, quote, colossal risk, He replied pretty bluntly, it is for them. And earlier in the day, the US president had said to Zelensky that he had given Washington a flat assurance that F-16 fighters will not be used to attack Russian soil and that this was the guarantee he needed in order for the permission to be granted. Now, a small number of European countries have them listed those on Friday's episode. The Netherlands has said that it is willing to export some of them to Ukraine, whilst the UK has said it could help with training. So that's where we actually are in terms of whether these things are going to be going to them. But the biggest stumbling block in the short term was knowing that Washington was going to give permission. And as I say, they have done that. Now, also at the G7, there was the launching of a new economic hit squad to help Western countries deal with attempts by Russia and China to interfere in their internal affairs. So the alliance of major industrialised nations will set up a new, what they call, coordination programme on economic coercion following the rise in authoritarian states meddling in countries' sovereign affairs. It seems to have been steered by the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who highlighted in a speech the huge potential costs to the global economy of hostile activity, noting the impact, of course, of Russia's stranglehold on European gas supplies last year. He said in his remarks, we should be clear eyed about the growing challenge we face. China is engaged in a concerted and strategic economic contest. And when Russia weaponized Europe's energy supplies, it was a sign of what can happen when we rely too much on states who don't share our values. Our collective economic security matters now more than ever. By working together and avoiding competition between friends, we can lift our prosperity, innovate faster and outcompete autocratic states. And as we've discussed many times before, the West is playing catch up to Russia and China in winning back round Africa and Southeast Asia. And I think this will be attempted in that context of trying to fight back against that. But of course, it's going to take time. And so, but I do feel this is quite a significant shift. This does mark a certainly a marked shift in tone 
But obviously, we're just going to see the extent of this platform and programme and quite how much investment is behind it. But clearly, the intention is there. As I say, it's been signed off by the major powers of the G7. Now, elsewhere at the summit, Indian Prime Minister Modi uh, did meet with Zelensky and he said that he would do whatever it is possible to find a solution to bring an end to the war. And he's pretty candid in his remarks, actually. I think there was more coming out of this than many expected. I thought we would sort of see a handshake and a few platitudes. But actually, he did go further. So he said, over the past one and a half years, we have spoken on the phone. This is Modi speaking about Zelensky. But after a long time, we have an opportunity to meet. The war in Ukraine is a very big issue for the whole world. It has had many different impacts on the whole world. But I don't see this as a political or economic issue. For me, this is an issue of humanity, an issue of human values. You know more than any of us what it is to suffer in this war. And then he went on and talked about how he'd heard from Indian students who had left the country of Ukraine, that just how horrific the conditions were there. And he said that it made him understand the pain felt by Zelensky and other Ukrainian citizens. And then he said, I wish to assure you that India and I in my personal capacity will do whatever is possible to find a solution to this conflict. Now, nothing more clear about obviously what they will do and what they will advocate for in any future negotiations. But nonetheless, I do think he said they're more than expected in a more emotive manner than many expected. So quite interesting, but the proof will be in the pudding. It's not all roses at the G7, though. Brazil's president didn't get to meet with President Zelensky. There was a plan, apparently a scheduled meeting, but President Zelensky wasn't able to attend that. And so there's a little bit of a tense, a bit of a tension this morning, I think, between the two countries. Some are interpreting this as a bit of a blow to Zelensky, that he tried to sort of woo India and Brazil, who are two of the the countries who were able to attend the G7, whilst not being formal members who were there and are obviously more geopolitically aligned with Russia. And so the fact that he wasn't able to talk with him, I'm sure, will be a frustration. But they've also had some warmer words this morning, so perhaps it's not quite too bad. Prior to the G7, of course, Zelensky was at the Arab League summit. He'd just arrived on Friday when we were reporting that in Jeddah. Now, he gave us a big speech there. He said that it was vital that the Arab nations help to protect the Ukrainian people, including the Muslim community in Crimea. He also thanked Saudi Arabia for its efforts to try and help negotiate the return of prisoners, something that, of course, was very important several months ago, and spoke to some Arab students who had visited and studied in Ukraine. And he made a speech and he talked about how Ukraine's never chosen the war. Our troops don't go to other lands. We do not engage in annexation and plunder of other nations' resources. We will never submit to any foreigners or colonisers. I thought that was a very interesting use of phrasing there, obviously given tensions in the Middle East and attitudes towards the West. I'm sure you will understand our main emotion, the main call I want to leave in Jeddah, a noble call to all of you to help protect our people, including the Ukrainian Muslim community. And the Saudi Crown Prince said the kingdom would continue mediating efforts between Russia and Ukraine and support all international efforts aimed at resolving the crisis. And But he did, I have to say, President Zelensky make one quite punchy remark where he said that many members of the Arab League preferred to turn a blind eye to what had happened. And of course, we know that is true, including some of Russia's larger allies in that bloc, as it were, including Bashir al-Assad, the Syrian president, who I spoke to at le- about, not didn't speak to him, God, spoke to at, about at length on Friday. So I won't go over that again, but he did attend the summit and he pulled out his headphones as Mr. Zelensky was speaking. So I think we can read, well, a lot into that. As I say, I 
can't remember a weekend with so much going on in the diplomatic sphere. And it's evidently been a very significant one in other spheres too. But Genevieve, coming to you next, obviously you'll be covering what's been going on this morning in Belgorod on the live blog. But what else has caught your eye? Hi, thanks, Francis. Yeah, I think I'll start with the latest news from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant where fears about its safety have been raised once again after it suffered a brief power outage this morning, the seventh blackout since Russia took control of the plant last year. It left the facility briefly reliant on emergency backup diesel generators following an outage. Ukraine and Russia, Russia have occupied the plant for some months now. Ukraine and Russia have blamed each other for the outage. A Russian installed local official said that Ukraine had disconnected a power line, while Ukrainian state-owned nuclear energy company Energoatom have said that the issue had been caused by Russian shelling. In a statement after um, power was restored, Anna Atom said, Ukrainian experts restored the operation of the Dniprovska 750-kilowatt high-voltage power transmission line from which the temporarily occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant supplies its own needs. The risk of a nuclear and radiation accident is minimised. The situation is stable. They added, we will remind you that on the morning of the 22nd of May at 5.26am, this line was disconnected as a result of Russian shelling. Since it is the last one that powers the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, all backup diesel generators are automatically turned on. As a result, the station experienced a blackout for the seventh time since the beginning of the occupation. The Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the UN nuclear watchdog, Rafael Grossi, also confirmed reports of this outage on Twitter this morning. He said the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant lost all external electricity for the seventh time during the conflict. And he added, we must agree to protect the plant now. The situation cannot continue. This news has come also as the Washington Post reported that Mr Grossi is reportedly pushing for a new proposal to reduce the risk of a nuclear disaster at the plant, according to US and European diplomats who spoke to the paper. He is apparently to present a list of five principles to the UN Security Council for them to endorse later this month, according to two diplomats familiar with the negotiations. These five principles reportedly include a ban on stationing heavy military equipment and military personnel at the plant, a ban on firing from and towards the the plant, including a ban on attacking personnel at the facility, protection of all systems pertaining to security and safety, and protection of all external power lines. Now, this new plan is less ambitious than the nuclear chief's original plans in which he hoped to establish a fully-fledged protection zone around the plant. However, Kiev is reportedly reluctant to let World Powers broker any kind of deal concerning the plant other than Russia's total surrender of the plant and withdrawal from the city of Enerhodar, where it is located. Well, thanks, Genevieve. I know a lot of listeners are following what's going on in Zaporizhia very closely, so always good to get an update from there. You've also been following what's been going on in Moldova. And I know you were speaking a little bit about some interesting developments there last week. What was happening over the weekend? 
Yes, so as was mentioned towards the end of last week, there was a rally this weekend in Moldova in which tens of thousands attended to demand European Union membership for Moldova, whose bid to join the bloc has been accelerated by the war in Ukraine. The country applied last year to join the EU and in June became a candidate country alongside Ukraine. According to initial police estimates, more than 75,000 people participated in the pro-EU demonstration in Chisinau, in Moldova, the capital. And the country's president tweeted on Sunday, Moldova's place is undeniably within the EU and today our citizens made that resoundingly clear. Inspired by the enthusiasm of the European Moldova that showcased our unity and determination for an EU future. Together, we will forge our path towards EU and build a prosperous Moldova. She tweeted this message alongside footage of the huge crowds gathered in the city who were waving Moldovan and EU flags as she walked among the attendees and then she went on to give an address. In that address, she said, Moldova does not want to be blackmailed by the Kremlin. Now, previously, she has accused Russia of trying to sabotage its European integration efforts by fueling anti-government protests and propaganda. Moscow denies this. Also at the rally, European Parliament President Roberta Metsola, who was on a visit to Chisinau, She said that Europe would welcome Moldova with open arms and open hearts. They added, this is about the both of us. You will bring a piece of Moldova to Europe and you will make Europe stronger. Thanks, Genevieve. A really interesting example of, again, the shifting sands as a result of this war in the European context. Just one final story then. I understand there's been something quite visually striking happening at the Cannes Film Festival. Yes, so something slightly different and again outside of Russia and Ukraine, but still connected, of course. A woman dressed in the colours of the Ukrainian flag was removed from the red carpet at the Cannes Film Festival on Sunday after she poured fake blood over herself in an apparent anti-war protest. So the incident took place ahead of the premiere of the film Acide by French film director Juste Philippot on Sunday evening at the festival in the south of France. It's not immediately clear why the demonstration took place at this premiere. But the protester, who was wearing a yellow and blue gown and blue-heeled shoes, appeared to reach into her dress and pull out two capsules of red fake blood, we presume, before releasing them over her head as she smiled for the cameras. The red blood poured over her and onto the steps of the red carpet beneath her. She was then escorted down the stairs by a security guard and away from the event. Before before the festival began last week, the director Thierry Fremont said that the festival stood in solidarity with Ukraine. And at the festival's opening ceremony on Tuesday evening, French actress Catherine Deneuve had paid tribute to the victims of the war by reciting the poem Hope by Ukrainian poet Lesia Ukrainka. So the Ukraine war has you know, been a presence at the event since it began. And a ban on Russian delegations or film companies connected to the Russian government remains in place at this year's festival. There was a protest also staged at the festival last year in Cannes, in which a Ukrainian woman stripped naked and revealed the message, Stop Raping Us, written in body paint across her chest, amid reports that soldiers were committing acts of sexual violence against women in Ukraine. So again, and the Cannes Film Festival, there has been another protest related to the Ukraine war this year. Thanks, Genevieve. It's always important, I think, to register these kind of 
protests or events that happen in the cultural public eye because of course they do matter a lot for keeping the war in the general consciousness of culture and around the world so it's even if it may seem like relatively small compared to some of the other things that we've been talking about today I think it's still noteworthy and we're right to draw attention to them when we can but Natalia thank you very much for your patience of course our Russia correspondent and regular on the podcast I just wanted to start with you if I may with your reflections about the timing of Putin declaring victory in Bakhmut and it's important implications generally for the Kremlin's relationship with, of course, the Wagner Group, because we know there's been tensions there. Just very interested in your perspective on, on what's been happening. Hi, Francis, and hi, everyone. Yeah, a very good point to talk about Putin speaking about the victory in Bakhmut, because in recent weeks and even in months, Putin has not been speaking about the war that much. We could see him sitting in his Kremlin office talking about utilities, sports and recreation, anything but the war, because there was not really much to report and not much to brag about. It's been months since Russia could claim any sort of victory in Ukraine, even if it was a couple of villages or small towns that they captured. Bakhmut obviously is a mid-sized town and it's quite a symbolic victory. It's a Pyrrhic victory of sorts, obviously, because the town has been completely devastated. If any of our listeners has seen any footage or video, it's I mean, I've been to Aleppo. I haven't been to Mariupol since it has been destroyed, but I would say that this is an apocalyptic scene that like, is straight out of the Second World War history. Now, Putin hasn't spoken about the war that much. On a Sunday morning, took the opportunity to congratulate Russian troops and Wagner on winning the Battle of Bakhmut. Obviously, it's a good chance for him to to tell Russians that you know their Russian soldiers are not doing are not dying for nothing. Where or rather Russia is gain, gaining territory. The fate of Wagner after the Bakhmut battle is quite unclear because as far as we understand, most, if not all, of Wagner forces have been focused around Bakhmut. And as Dom mentioned earlier, there's a plan for them to pull out. So there's this there's this idea that the Wagner troops might turn out to be quite dispensable because, in a way, Bakhmut was the only area of the front line where they looked like they were making a difference. And once this is over, it's not really clear what else would they be needed for. Again, obviously, that happened just what, two weeks after the Victory Day, after a very muted Victory Day parade that happened a couple of days after a daring drone attack on the Kremlin, which showed that Moscow was just as vulnerable as possible. So that's the only, that's the first bit of good news that Russia could report. And if someone was watching Russian state TV on Monday morning, they would see jubilant coverage that would surprise even seasoned Russia watchers like me. There were things, I'm just looking at quotes, comparisons galore, comparing them to Russia's, the Soviet Union victory in the Second World War, to the Battle of Berlin and things like that, which obviously shows you how desperate the Kremlin has been to present any type of victory for the domestic audience. That's fascinating. I mean, just as we were talking about last week, absurd examples to cite in many ways. But Natalia, you've written some really interesting stuff for the paper recently. One that caught my eye and I wanted to ask you about is a story about the CIA operating in Russia. What's this one? 
Yeah, that's actually quite funny one. And I would say it could tell you something about the thinking of the US intelligence community that they like now in the 14th or 15th month of the war, they would decide to launch a Russian language telegram channel. Telegram obviously is the messenger of choice for most people in Russia and Ukraine. So the CIA has launched a campaign on telegram to persuade war weary officials to leak information and basically detect to the American side. There's quite an impressive, you know, cinema speaking piece of recruitment video that they produced very moody very gloomy and dark filmed in some undisclosed obviously eastern european location with a snowy landscape and a wistful looking official looking at family f- pictures uh, pondering about his life and the, where the life goes wrong at the end of the day we can see him looking at the screen of his smartphone at the page reading contact the CIA and he contacts the CIA obviously to save his country the way he sees it that's the CIA's call for Russian officials let's see let's see what happens the Kremlin was obviously very skeptical of the campaign on the other hand it gave them lots of fodder to feed their narrative about the vile West which is setting to destroy Russia from within and planting spies everywhere so to them at least according to a Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov there was a sign that the CIA and other foreign intelligence agencies have been relentlessly active in our country as he put it Thanks, Natalia. And as you say, it, it does suggest that the CIA thinks that there is rush, fertile soil in Russia with regarding to how to potentially win round some of these sort of officials who are unhappy about what's been going on with regard to the war. Just staying on sort of espionage, spycraft, it sounds like there's been an interesting story coming out of Germany following a Berlin meeting of Russian dissidents. What's this story? Yeah, so that story first surfaced last week and it was published by a Russian investigative media outlet in exile against Va, in which they named in which they said two two people who attended a conference organized by an exiled Russian oligarchs have been taken to hospital with mysterious poisoning symptoms and they named one of them. One of them is a well-known exiled Russian opposition activist who confirmed the incident in her Facebook post saying that she didn't go to conference, that they were something, you know, things looked terribly fishy. She, um, at some point, she saw the door to her hotel room in Berlin wide open. She inquired at the reception desk. They were, they told her everything was fine. And around that time, she felt unwell. She was taken to hospital. The hospital test results were inconclusive, but some symptoms were still lingering. And now we had a confirmation of the weekend that German police is investigating the case for two people who were reportedly poisoned at the conference. I just reached out to one of the participants in the Berlin conference just earlier this afternoon. She, again, confirmed the incident to me, but she said she wouldn't want to talk about it further because she was also able to confirm that the investigation is ongoing and she didn't feel like it was the right moment to meddle with it. Thanks, Natalia. Now, regular listeners will, of course, be aware that you're currently reporting from Istanbul in Turkey and have been covering the election there for us. Of course, President Erdogan is facing a really tough fight against the opposition. Just very interested in your perspective on the latest that's happening there as we approach the runoff and its potential implications for 
Turkey's relationship with the West and, of course, more broadly, therefore, with the war in Ukraine? Yeah, well, so to, uh, next to this coming Sunday is the runoff in the Turkish presidential elections. If one were to compare the first round with the runoff, I would say uh, both contenders have been mostly focused on domestic agenda, on domestic issues, with a little bit of foreign policy thrown in. Right now, with just six days left till the runoff, the focus is entirely on the domestic agenda, unless you consider the issue of Syrian uh, refugees a foreign policy one. Here in Turkey, obviously, it has a huge domestic, he has huge domestic policy implications. So I would say in the past weeks, both Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Kemal Kirishtirolo have been quite busy trying to A, solidify their their voting base and B, trying to attract more voters. This afternoon is actually, we're probably going to see a very, uh, an announcement that might have quite serious implications for the results, for the outcome of the elections, which is when a third Turkish presidential candidate who is not going to be in the runoff, he's expected to make an announcement and officially endorse one of the candidates. He's an ultra-nationalist politician who has been speaking for essentially kicking out all of the Syrian migrants. Again, neither him nor the other two contenders have been focused heavily on Ukraine or on support for the war, because over right here in Turkey doesn't seem like that's an issue that can gain anybody's any point in the war. As I've said on one of our previous episodes, Turkey is one of the countries that has actually been making money off the war in so many ways, including by letting Russia to import sanctions goods by stopping bypassing sanctions in ways that's legal, semi-legal and not quite so legal. So right now, Ukraine is not on the agenda here. Thank you. One last question on that. Is it too oversimplistic to say that if the opposition were to beat Erdogan, that would see a more pro-Western Turkey? Well, they are definitely speaking about getting more pro-Western, but in the sense that they want to, at least they promise their voters to stand for civil liberties, stand for freedom on speech, stop the growing, worsening trends of the clampdown on independent media, on freedom of expression. So you would imagine that if they were to comply with that, if they were to try to get Turkey back on track towards the European Union membership. And I would like to remind everyone that Turkey has been trying to enter the EU for the past 30 years or something like that. I would imagine that European leaders and the West in general would expect Turkey to be more on board and more on li- in line with the general policy, including, you know, what is NATO doing? What, If not sending weapons to Ukraine, but maybe providing training and doing something more than the wonderful humanitarian efforts we have seen. Turkey has been house giving, providing housing and board for Ukrainian kids and families. But obviously, that's not the level of support that we've been seeing from the West. Thank you. Well, we'll come back to you for a final two stories in a moment. But just turning back to Dom, I remember that we were talking many months ago about the potential consequences of sanctions on the safety for Russian airlines and Russian equipment more broadly. We are starting to see some implications of that on the battlefield. But you've seen another story about something that's happening in the more domestic sphere as a consequence of this. What, what is this story? Yeah, well, it chimes exactly with, as you said there, Western sanctions biting, and we're seeing it now in in various sectors around the Russian economy. And this 
So this is the aviation sector. There was a guy called Viktor Pasagin, who's the head of Rostransnadzor. That's Russia's transport watchdog, basically. He was up in front of a Russian parliamentary committee. And he said that since the well sanctions went in basically in March last year, invasion, full-scale invasion, February 24th, first sanctions really in March, and went straight for the aviation sector. And Mr. Basagin said that, that since then, Russian airliners have made about 2,000 flights with out-of-date safety equipment. And he said, said so several hundred unscheduled inspections of airlines showed that companies operating Western equipment have a shortage of components and problems with the supply of consumables. Although, I mean, this is him quoted in the Commerçant newspaper. But yeah, I think it's fairly really reasonable that those were, those were his words. Now, he did say the main problem lay with the smaller Russian airlines and not with the main carrier Aeroflot. Flot did release a statement saying nothing to see here, hadn't cut corners with safety measures. They actually said all spare parts undergo strict incoming control for compliance with quality requirements, history of origin and have the necessary certificates. But these comments from Mr. Basagin, they are in the wake of a Russian opposition website that did an investigation which started investigation into the aviation sector but it was started with a with claims that Aeroflot had told its cabin crew to stop reporting defective or missing safety equipment or or report it verbally not in logbooks so this was the prox investigation and it had a load of different interviews with staff and had this email that it said uh, from last March, as soon as the sanctions started biting, this email apparently said that they are only to report malfunctions verbally through the chain rather than have any kind of paper trail anywhere. It quoted a senior flight attendant saying that they'd been told that some some items could not be replaced. And it also quoted ground staff saying that safety documentation had expired. Now, we approached, we the Telegraph approached Aeroflot for comment about that investigation, but, uh, but not yet to hear back so i mean this is the manifestation of what we thought would happen now of course because of sanctions you're not likely to get any you're not you're going to be flying aeroflot anywhere but you know some of these smaller airliners they have should we say opaque relationships with some of the some of the regions around around russia and you know journalists do take these flights i mean i wouldn't go near them with a barge pole i was last on aeroflot in 1986 with a school trip but uh, you know it was bad enough then although the vodka was quite nice but yes, yeah, so this is just one sector where we are seeing a very definite biting of the sanctions. There will be more. Thank you, Dom. And Natalia, just for one or two final stories, you've been reflecting a lot about Putin recently for us. And I was quite struck by a story you've written about Putin's superstition and an ask of him to the church to hand back a treasured icon. What's all this about? Yeah, I would love to speak about the story, actually, because I do think it's one of the most underreported Russia stories this week, if not for the whole month. You know, we have heard so much in the past year about there was so much speculation about Putin completely losing it, Putin getting too superstitious, too religious. But none of these have been steeped in any facts in any solid reporting. It was mostly hearsay, lots of unofficial reports. And that story, to me, is the biggest confirmation of all that the president of Russia, the president of 23 years, appears to have nothing to rely on and nothing to count on in his war in Ukraine other than Russia's most treasured icon. We're talking about the Holy Trinity icon painted by Andrei Rublev. 
which is the 13th century masterpiece. I forgot what's which century it was painted on, but for yeah, 30th century masterpiece, the one of the best known work of medieval Russian art. It has been kept at the Tretyakov Gallery, one of Russia's biggest museums, for a century. It's 600 years old. Art historians are basically saying that these are three planks of wood put together with some varnish and oil and paint on it. And if you take it out of the museum, not necessarily even take it out of the case, um, and if it's put in a, in a different environment, that there's a risk of a full destruction that the icon could literally, to quote one expert, fall apart to pieces. Now, the only reason why this icon is about to move out of a museum is that Vladimir Putin quite surprisingly signed a decree, apparently he can do that, a week ago, ordering the Tretyakov Gallery, which is a state-funded museum, to transfer the icon, to hand it over to the Russian Orthodox Church. And the Russian Church has been sort of working its way slowly, petitioning the Russian government to uh, bring back this or that relic from a this or that museum back to the church fold. But in all of the previous years, uh, those attempts were completely futile. At best, they would be one of those artifacts would be on loan for a major celebration for a week or two at best. But this time, officials are not making any, they're not hiding the fact that this is absolutely linked to Putin's war in Ukraine. There's, uh, there's this quite stunning um, quote that I came across from the head of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, nonetheless, the head of one of Russia's biggest museums, one of the most important museums in the world. Mikhail Piatrovsky for years was a much respected art figure, art manager. And in 2023, he just said it out loud that, quote, cultural value is less important than the symbolic sacred value of those uh, relics. And his museum is also handing over the casket that once held the body of the 13th century Russian prince Alexander Nevsky, who, according to Vladimir Putin, was a paragon of Russia's battle against the West. These are quite remarkable once-in-a-generation event. I've spoken to this art historian who even compared the transfer of this casket and the Holy Trinity icon to Mr. Erdogan's, the Turkish president Erdogan's decision to turn the Hagia Sophia church museum back into a mosque. Again, if, if we talk to art critics, if we talk to church watchers, they all say that this, the only reason for that is that Putin has been becoming increasingly religious and this is way, his way to sort of pay the debt to the church which has been a vocal supporter of the war, which closed the ranks to support the war. And uh, Putin is also obviously trying to emulate Stalin, Joseph Stalin, the Russian dictator, who in the middle of the Second World War, almost a century ago, famously released a group of priests and he allowed the Russian Orthodox Church to function somehow after shutting it down almost completely. And he ordered his troops to fly around Moscow with an icon to protect it from the enemy. So that's one way that Vladimir Putin is trying to emulate Joseph Stalin here. Thanks, Natalia. Yes, Stalin's renaissance of religion, in inverted commas, is a very interesting subject indeed when you compare 
the actions of the Bolsheviks towards the church from the Russian Revolution onwards. And they were blowing churches up, literally, for many years in an attempt to eradicate the influence and power of the church, which it saw as a sort of bastion of superstition and conservatism, as it were. And yet, very quickly, they suddenly realised that if they wanted people to be fighting for them, particularly in the context of the Second World War, that they were going to need the church. And as you say, you saw Stalin bringing it all back. And it does seem that Putin has some sympathy towards that idea that when things get tough, fall back on the church. One other story from you, Natalia. This is about Putin's underground lair. Quite an extraordinary one, this one. Yeah, I know. Those, so these are blueprints. So, so these are architectural plans, not necessarily blueprints. From Vladimir Putin's secret palace, we know that he has several official res- residences. But it was two years, almost exactly two years ago, that the team of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny put out an extensive investigation into a mysterious property on the Black Sea coast near the city of Gelenjik that appears to have been built solely for the use of Vladimir Putin and his family. We've known about this palace a lot. Navalny's team has relied on leaked photographs, leaked financial documents for for an underground complex just beneath this palace that appears to have a uh, web of a uh, web of bunkers, underground bunkers under the palace. Initially, when this report just came out, and the only reason why we know about it was apparently because the engineering company in charge of the construction at some point posted those pictures online. So how did they put it? Something like a spa in the city of Gelenjik. So there was a lot of discussions about when that investigation came out, what was this exactly about? What was it, a bomb shelter? Was it like a D-Day shelter for Putin to stay and hunker down and survive a nuclear war? But at close inspection, what we can see, we see two tunnels. There's an upper tunnel and there's a lower tunnel. They all, if you look at satellite pictures, one of them, it basically goes out to the seacoast. The upper tunnel exits a bit higher up. But at close inspection, it looks like these at least one of the tunnels appears to be more about recreation rather than surviving a nuclear war. There's a travelator in one of them. So I think there's an expectation that at least one of them is expected to be used as a nice beach walkway to be able to come down from a cliff on which the palace is perched down to the seacoast. Thank you, Natalia. And listeners who are keen to see that, if you just go on our website, we've got lots of diagrams in the piece that Natalia wrote. It's quite interesting. We've almost run out of time. Thank you both very much for your time. Dom, what are your final thoughts as we approach a new week? Well, I'm still watching news coming out of this region of Belgorod in Russia about what's this border incursion. I have now seen some track down some footage which does show a T-72 tank in there. I can't quite work out the date or the geolocation, but it's a relatively trusted source. But anyway, something's going on. We'll carry on with that tomorrow. But my final thoughts, I'm looking at obviously Bakhmut, and I think what we're going to see now is is a lot of propaganda basically i think it's going to be really interesting to see the comment from the russian sort of military blogger community who will want them to sort of get straight back in the saddle and head west i don't think russia is going to be able to do that for the reasons i mentioned earlier on but i think what we're going to see is a real effort here from russian trolls and officials and obviously those two groups aren't mutually exclusive but i think they're going to they're going to really try and 
shove a wedge between fact and truth. Now, we see this all the time. We see this with various disinformation campaigns that they come out with. But what I mean here is, you know, so let's take it as fact that Russia has secured a victory over the city of Bakhmut. Okay, that, for the sake of argument, let's say that is an incontestable fact. The truth that I think a lot of people from the Russian side will try and extrapolate from that is that this shows the might of the Russian army and how Ukrainian Nazis, drug dealers, moral degenerates and all-round ne'er-do-wells are weak and that there's going to be a victory for Moscow following any time now. Now, I do not. I see a massive difference between those two. I see that that truth does not spring from that fact. I can make, and I have made a case here and for many months now, that it's a very different truth, in fact. But I just think what we're going to see now is the dark arts really come into play with taking a small kernel of a fact and blowing it out into all sorts of distorted pseudo-truths. So, yeah, we're going to keep an eye on it. You're going to get news from all over the place, social media and what have you. But I just ask you at every juncture, just try and see if someone is giving you a fact or if they are trying to spin their own truth based on some legitimate facts, but a lot of illegitimate, i.e. made up um, bits and pieces. So I think that's what that's what we're going to see over the next few days. And I look forward to engaging with it. Thanks very much, Dom. Natalia, you've got the final thoughts for today. Sure, I'm going to I'm going to try to be very brief. I know that everyone has been focused on Bakhmut for such a long time and the battle has taken up so much resource so so much resources from the Russian side. You're talking about Wagner fighters, you're talking about ammunition. And obviously now that it's over, Russia would need time to, you know, leak those wounds to to replenish those losses. But the question is will it be able to and as we can see with today's incursions into Belgorod, the victory in Bakhmut may very well turn out to be a pyrrhic victory for Russia, as it will be its bleeding resources, it doesn't have enough men to fight, while obviously going to be seeing different uh, Ukrainian attacks from all sides. You know, right now, when everyone was expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive, we have this ongoing incursion in Russia. So I would definitely be looking for unusual Ukrainian attacks, attacks from unusual places right now. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You'll find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. 
As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.